Well, I had a dream last night, not the Martin Luther King kind of a dream. I have a dream. No, sorry. It's not as important as that one. But I dreamt, you know, sometimes when you're thinking about stuff, your brain is processing and you actually try, your, your dreams are ways in which you try and process stuff that happens during the day. Well, I guess my brain was trying to process today because I dreamt and it felt so real. You know all those dreams where you just like almost wake up sweating because they're so real? Well, I dreamt that I was coming to chapel, ready to share. I go in and I'm going, wow, this is a pretty small room compared to what I remembered last year. And there's about 20 people sitting around in a U and their teacher there. So I, oh, I guess it's chapel. So I start sharing. And all of a sudden, you know, the teacher starts interrupting me a bit. Oh, that's kind of rude. She's interrupting me speaking at chapel. And all of a sudden I realize it's 1030 and we all look at each other going, wait a second, you're the chapel speaker? Yeah, you're in the wrong place. Chapel started half an hour ago. No! So I'm racing, running through condo units, through this, this ditch, trying not to get my pants dirty, and finally I get to chapel, and there you're all hanging, relaxing, having fun, waiting for the speaker to come. You know, I thought, what a nice welcome. So uh, I feel the same kind of welcome in spite of my dream. <laughs> Well, let's pray as we commend our time into the Lord's care. Father, we thank you that you're the one who loves us more than we love ourselves. You know us better than we know ourselves. Uh, you already have the future in place uh, because you're living inside of us. What will be already is. And thank you that we have the privilege of being your children and of uh, knowing you, of hearing you, of walking with you, of talking with you, of enjoying you, of, of allowing you to live out through us in each and every moment of our days. Grant us grace to hear what your spirit is saying to us today, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth as it relates to our walk with you in these next minutes, these next hours, days, weeks, and the rest of our life ahead. In your precious name, I thank you, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that you are here now. Amen. Well, you've been walking through the I am sayings, and last week you had the Jesus saying, I am the true vine. And today, I've been given the topic of um, Emmanuel, God with us. And uh, if you uh, know some Hebrew, and you know that the phrase I am, even you know the English, I am who I am, uh, references back to the covenant name of the God of Israel. And in Hebrew, that covenant name was associated with four letters. Anybody know what those four letters are? Why? Why what? Y-H-W-H, okay? And uh, a good Jew would never pronounce that name, so they substitute the, name, the word for master, Adonai. And you put the vowels of Adonai, A-O and A-I, and Y-H-W-H, you get Yahowah. And that's where we get Jehovah from, but that's not technically... Uh, a Jew wouldn't say that. They would just say Adonai, or they say Hashem, the name, in lieu of that. But this Jesus I am sayings, and particularly when they're written in Greek, they, in Greek you can say I am just by the verb amy, that means I am, or you can say I am emphatically by adding the first person pronoun in front of amy, going ego I am. You know, lego my ego? That, okay. Ego I am. That means I, I am. And there is an illusional hint back to the name of Yahweh, the I am who I am, when you get that emphatic construction in the Greek. And today we're not going to be able to get an I am saying, well, actually we are, but it wasn't given to me as part of our verses, because in Revelation you do have 
that Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. We start out in chapter one, verse eight, where God is clearly identified as saying, I am the Alpha and Omega. And then we go all the way to the end of chapter 22, and I think it's verse eight again, where then Jesus interrupts and he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, I am coming soon. And so we see this real connection with Jesus as very God. And we understand the Trinity, God the Son, Father, and Holy Spirit. Well, today we want to look at Jesus, God with us, the name Emmanuel. And the passages I've been given are Matthew 1, 22 to 23, Isaiah 7, 14, and Revelation uh, uh, 21, verse uh, 3. And so here they are. Matthew 21, 1, verses 22 to 23. Very familiar verse to us where the angel says, look, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if you want a good little Hebrew lesson, Emmanuel, I am, im, is with. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't do this on the fly. With, uh, yeah. No, nu is like us, and then el is the uh, word for God in Hebrew. So with us, God, Emmanuel, Jesus. That is our blessed Savior, and Isaiah 7.14 is being quoted here. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And then he goes on to continue, Before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste by the king of Assyria. So Matthew is quoting back to Isaiah 7, and we're going to take a look at the word Emmanuel because there are some background issues we need to understand as we move forward with that. And then Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3 as the other context for today. And I love that I was given this particular verse because most people would not usually associate Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, with the concept of God with us at the end of human history in a corporate sense. And so I love this nice, holistic view of what God with us means. So he says, Revelation 21, two and three, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, the home, or the Greek is tabernacle, of God is with humans, and he will dwell, and it's a verb from tabernacle, he will tabernacle with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. God with us. Individually, in Christ, and eternally, when the new Jerusalem uh, becomes revealed. Well, let's go back to Matthew chapter 7. This is uh, Isaiah, actually, and Matthew, because this is our Christmas verse, our reflection upon Jesus as our Emmanuel, our God with us. So, The question that arises is Matthew's use of the Greek uh, noun virgin doesn't exactly match the Hebrew word used in Isaiah 7 verse 14. And so here's what we have. We have some possible translations. So Matthew, he uses the Greek word parthenos, which is virgin. It means somebody who has not had sex yet, a virgin. But in the Hebrew Bible, or BHS, the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, 
we have the word Alma. And that Hebrew word doesn't mean virgin, only virgin. It's a broader semantic range, and it means young woman. The normal Hebrew word for virgin is betula. So Isaiah could have put betula in there instead of alma, but he didn't. He used alma. But the semantic range of betula and virgin, while overlapping, aren't exactly the same. Because an old woman could be a betula, an old woman could be a virgin, but she wouldn't be an alma, a young woman. So there isn't exactly that semantic range. And this has led to questions as to what, how did Matthew get Parthenos? What is he trying to do here? Well, in the Septuagint version, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible in the late 200s BC, um, the Septuagint uses the word Parthenos. So Septuagint translates the Hebrew Alma with Parthenos. So is this what Matthew is reading and quoting the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew? That's one perspective. Uh, But there's also the view that Matthew originally wrote his gospel in Hebrew. So he would have known Hebrew and could very well have chosen a broader uh, word. Well, interestingly, as Christians started to grow out in the Roman Empire and clashes with Jews unfolded more and more, uh, the Jews realized that the Septuagint isn't helping their cause any because the Septuagint says that this child to be born is a, from a virgin, a Parthenos, but they, as you can understand, that would challenge some in Judaism. So later Jewish versions of the Septuagint removed Parthenos and just used the word young woman. So you see there Aquila and Theodosia. So we have this challenge that unfolded in the Jews and Christians over the centuries, what's being said here by that particular verse in Isaiah. And so by the fourth century, um, we've got basically, uh, you might say, the uh, gold standard definition of what Matthew is doing here. And Jerome in the fourth century CE, he did a study such to the point that he demonstrated that Alma is only used of virgins in the Hebrew Bible, even though it could have a broader semantic range of just a young woman of marriageable age. But in the context, Alma is always used with respect to a virgin. And then a great article in JBL, Journal of Biblical Literature uh, by Wolf, he looked at Ugaritic birth parallels, where they're using the same kind of terminology and Um, he noticed there that Alma there specifically refers to a woman of marriageable age, specifically a bride-to-be, thus whose virginity is implicit. So from within the Hebrew Bible context, Alma is used only within context referring to virgin, and within even Ugaritic context, similar, because it's a similar West Semitic kind of uh, uh, language system, that it's only used for brides-to-be, which implies virginity. So it's a legitimate moved by Matthew to locate the meaning of Alma only as virgin within the context of referring to Mary and the birth of Christ. But you need to understand a couple things, and this might be boring theology for some of you, but it gets better, trust me. Okay, so now we're moving back to Isaiah 7.14, and we look at, you need to look at the concept of prophecy, because you're going, well, how does that relate back to Isaiah 7.14 now? What's he saying in that context? Is he only talking about the Messiah coming 1,000 years, 800 years later? 
Well, you need to understand that Hebrew prophecy usually has a twofold fulfillment um, paradigm. And so there's an immediate fulfillment. And again, when we're dealing with Hebrew prophecy, scholars have sort of looked at the uh, prophecy as two things. It's foretelling, prediction, and forthtelling, proclamation, or paranesis, where you're challenging people on their moral and ethical standards. And in the Hebrew Bible, the content of the prophets, some have looked at it and said it's up to 95% is paranesis or proclamation or challenging the moral and ethical standards. 5% is predictive. Of the predictive pieces, it's important to realize that Hebrew prophecy has sort of a, a dual fo- uh, foci. So it has an immediate fulfillment, anticipated, but it's not a complete fulfillment. There's then an ultimate fulfillment going to take place at some time later in the future. And so it's almost like if I'm looking at mountains, and if you like skiing and snowboarding, that season is upon us soon. My knees are wrecked, so I can't ski anymore, unfortunately, playing too much soccer and tore both my ACLs. Don't get old. It's not fun. So as you're looking up at a mountain, you see a mountain peak, and if there's a peak behind it, just peaking over top it, it looks like one peak, right? looking at it. But if you're looking at it from the side, you're going, oh, there is one peak and there's a higher peak and my angle of vision sees both at the same time. Sort of like Hebrew prophecy. The prophet is seeing two events sort of squished together, but in reality, they're two separate time frames, one immediate and one future. And that has reference to this particular Isaiah passage. There is the historical Fulfillment in Isaiah's time frame where it talks about before the boy becomes of age, this boy born of the Alma, the king of Assyria is going to take you two kings down for your rebellion against God. But it wasn't just fulfilled only in that time frame. Matthew is picking up that it also has a future fulfillment to the Messiah, to the, um, the son of David, Jesus, the Christ. And what, did you know that Christ is not Jesus' last name? just in case that wasn't aware. What does it mean? Jesus Christ, Messiah. Okay, so Christos is a Greek word for Mashiach, which is Messiah. Okay, perfect. So Matthew's looking at the Messianic time frame saying Jesus is that fulfillment. He is the Emmanuel of Isaiah 7.14. He is God with us in a very real way. So we move now forward to Matthew to the scene of the Magi coming and worshiping there, um, this king, this Emmanuel, this God with us. Now, I'm going to suggest that you might have to revise your nativity scenes a little bit as we move into Matthew's version, okay? So, here's what you need to do. I'm suggesting that Matthew is talking about Jesus when he's a toddler, He could be up to two years old by the time the Magi arrive. Luke is talking about Jesus on the night of his birth, newborn. So you might have to remove your Magi from the nativity scenes because you see when Matthew describes this scene of the Magi coming, he says that they come to a house, not to a manger, in Bethlehem. So Mary and Joseph are now in a house in Bethlehem. It says that when they came to Jerusalem, looking for the king, they said to Herod, hey, where's this king that's been born? For we've seen his star. And Herod, of course, was none too impressed. So he said, well, uh, took him secretly, when 
did the star appear? Oh, look, they gave him a date. And they said, okay, when you see him, tell me and I'll come and worship him too. Well, in their dream, they're warned not to do that, so they leave without telling Herod. Herod is, again, even less impressed. And it says then he goes and he does what? Kills who? All the babies up to what age? Two. And then the Matthew's gospel says he did this based on the date he got from the Magi. So it could be that Jesus was up to two years old when the Magi visited him. And I put there that the star does not lead the Magi to Jesus. It reappears after two years over Bethlehem. Part of the challenges that we as Christians face from scientists is this concept of a star leading the Magi all the way to Bethlehem. And scientists say that's impossible. There's no astronomical uh, records of that ever happening. How could that even be possible? How could a comet even do it? Because it goes way faster than they're walking. How's that possible? The biblical text does not require that the star led them. If you read it closely, and again, people, we need to read the biblical text closely. Pray that the Spirit would lead you and guide you into truth and read closely the text. If you read it closely, you'll see that the star appeared, they got ready, came, visited Herod. It could have been up to two years by the time the star appeared, by the time they got to Jerusalem, and says they went to Jerusalem. Why would they go to Jerusalem if the star is leading them? If it wasn't leading them, well, you go to the capital where the king is. And this is when they left and were Herod's presence, the star reappeared. And it says they rejoiced with an exceedingly great joy. Could it be that they hadn't seen it for two years, that it appeared? And now, there it is. And then it says it led them to Bethlehem. It's only two miles to where Jesus was in the house. So, anyway, some changes perhaps you might want to consider. Um, And Luke says Jesus is a newborn. The shepherds visit the night of Jesus' birth. And hark the herald angels sing. Well, I think they actually just spoke it. If you read the Greek, it just says they said those words. Not that they sung. There's a Greek word they could have used for sung. So I'm just, you know, creating some interest in the story. That Go read your Christmas stories again. See what else you discover. Well, Jesus was not just God with us, Emmanuel, back then. He is God with us right now. God incarnate now. So the Son of God became Emmanuel, God with us, through his incarnational birth on the first Christmas Eve. At our conversion, Jesus, the Son of God, along with the Father and Holy Spirit, incarnate themselves into our bodies. So you already are what you will become. You already have the triune God dwelling inside you as you have committed and surrendered your life wholeheartedly to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, repented of your sins, and said, I am now your servant, your slave for life. I'm going to be faithful until death do us join. God's already living in you. So what we will experience in the future, we already have right now. And this is something called inaugurated eschatology. And I always encourage people, don't try hard to live what the Bible tells you to live, because then you're doing it by your own willpower. But rather say, God, help me to become who I already am. Everything you need in Christ, you already have, because God the Father Holy, and Son and Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Allow them to live out through you 
and the power and beauty of who they are. We just need a humble walk of letting God dwell out through us. And what does that look like? How are you letting the triune God live out through you and your communal relationships? Well, allow me to suggest um, that that has to be an everyday walk. Well, my wife and I just went to a Christmas party on Saturday to a lady she used to work with, and uh, you know they're from the, uh, the drinking crowd, and so they've got your Christmas party bound in their basement. They got whatever, all their alcohol and everything. And before we went, I just prayed, Lord, it'd be so awesome if this could be an opportunity that as people meet my wife and I, that they would just taste Jesus through us and that we'd have the opportunity for some good spiritual conversations. Well, we're just sort of visiting and there's these two couples that they ride bikes and they come out. We have a lake house at Alberta Beach. They come out there in the summer and they visit it a few times. And I was just talking to this other guy randomly. Ends up that his, him and his wife are part of this other two couples who go riding. And we start talking and all of a sudden, he opens up spiritually and start having this conversation. And here, he for 10 years had been in a church just south of here. Um, and then the church had this major blow up and he was totally disenfranchised with his church. He hadn't yet become a Christian. It's a turf church, I'm not interested anymore. But you could hear in his heart that he was open to God. So we had this great conversation of not focusing on church, but focus upon the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And at the end of it, we said, you know what? When Charlene and Kristen and their husbands come to Lake House, you and your wife come with your motorcycles too. He said, I think we might just do that. So just, his name's Bob, so you can be praying that the Lord will work in Bob's heart uh, in that regard. So not just that our conversion is God incarnate, uh, but on the day of Pentecost, Jesus, I might say, incarnates again into his body. So on the day of Pentecost, many scholars suggest that the church was born, the body of Christ was formed on the day of Pentecost. And Jesus again now has a body, but now millions of bodies because he's dwelling in each and every one of those who've submitted to him. And Jesus again incarnates into his body and now is living out as God with us in our daily routines. And a little tidbit here for you. When you, um, how do I say this? Okay, the devil cannot create falsehood. He can only twist truth. So whatever lies are out there, I would suggest there's always a kernel of truth in them that's been twisted. So it's not this either or kind of thing. It's a twisted, go deep down, and there's that kernel of truth that's either been applied to the wrong person, applied it for the wrong time, applied in the wrong situation. And when you hear the word reincarnation, we say, ah, oh, it's totally against biblical witness. Well, in this very, very limited sense, you might say Jesus reincarnates again into his body. Is that something the devil's taken and twisted now and applying it to everybody that you can come back and whatever, which of course is untrue. But Jesus, my encouragement is to, as you are engaging in your culture, listen to what people are saying. Find the kernel of truth, the, the heavenly hope that's there that people have twisted or missed or misconstrued and focus on that. It's almost like Paul in Acts 17 when he comes to Mars Hill and he says, you are, he sees all the religious idolism. He doesn't rant against it. He rather says, you guys are very religious. There's the truth. 
they've messed it up because they've gone to many gods, but there's the truth. And he builds upon that, and he moves them along slowly. And he says, well, your own prophets have said this. And that's a fascinating study. I won't get into it. I'll get distracted. But Jesus now in the church universal is now alive. God with us. And as the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. How are we as God's people incarnating God into our community relationships? In your churches, continue to stretch and broaden what it means to be the church in your communities. Be those change agents of God's grace, allowing Jesus to live out fully through your church in your communities. The city of Edmonton has an amazing development happening with the city of Edmonton, I mean the churches of Edmonton with the city of Edmonton. Uh, Reverend Howard Lawrence has uh, got the opportunity to build community organically within neighborhoods and the city is sponsoring that and there's this amazing chance for church leaders to become these neighborhood, almost like block connectors, where you build trust, you're connecting neighbors together for sharing resources, building friendships, and the city is creating this approach. And churches, that's a, such a strategic opportunity for churches to have our people there. And out of that comes the opportunity for spiritual conversation because they trust you because you're very holistic in how you're helping the community. Amazing development. Um, and January 15th, I'm speaking at Taylor's annual wall lecture, and I'm going to invite Howard and another lady who are doing this in the neighborhoods to be part of one of my sessions, to explain that to our pastors. How can we be more relevant and engaged in our communities? But it's not just God incarnate now. It's also God incarnate then. And I'm going to suggest here that we're going to look at the New Jerusalem perhaps a little bit of a different way than you're used to. So Revelation 21.3, we're moving now from Matthew to the end, God with us. 21.3 said, look, the home or tabernacle of God is with humans and he will dwell tabernacle with them and they'll be his peoples and God himself will be with them. And then in Revelation 21.9 and 10 comes this amazing passage that for John would have been this, what kind of moment. He's thinking something, expecting something, and he goes, bah! So in Revelation 4, the angel says to John, come, I will show you a lion of the tribe of Judah. So what's John expecting to see? A lion. And he says, and I looked and I saw, what did he see? A lamb slain. Seven horns, seven eyes. Ooh, weird kind of thing. Symbolic of Jesus, Jesus the Christ. So now in 21, 9 and 10, I'm going to suggest that the church is the, the, the picture of the future Jerusalem. There the angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And what did the angel show John? The new Jerusalem. Naos is the Greek word for sanctuary, holy of holies. Coming down out of heaven from God. Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. What's John expecting to see? When I say, what's the bride, the wife of the lamb? What's your first reaction? Who's the bride, the wife of the lamb? Church. Exactly, he's expecting to see the people of God. But what does he see? The new Jerusalem. Are you kidding me? What's going on? Well, it could be that here is strongly implied that the new Jerusalem is portrayed as a people who are a place, not as a place for people. And Robert Gundry already suggested this back in 1987. And if you look at the new Jerusalem, 
It's kind of an uncity-like city. Uh, there's only one street. There's no mansions. Sorry. No mansions. Um, and it's described as a cubic holy of holies. So it's a cube. It's 1,500 miles wide, high, and whatever the other word is. Wide, high, long. <laughs> there you go. It's a cube. Well, what is a cube in the Old Testament? I already gave you the answer. <laughs> the Holy of Holies. In the tabernacle, it's 10 by 10 by 10 cubits. In the temple, it's 20 by 20 by 20. It's a cube. The New Jerusalem is pictured as the Holy of Holies, where God is everywhere present with everyone at the same time. That's what we all want. That's the final consummation. But I would suggest that we are that New Jerusalem. We are that New Jerusalem. Is that who we will be revealed as in the future? Or is it actually something we already are now? Are we already now the new Jerusalem? But yet hidden, invisible, not yet revealed as such. Well, perhaps Revelation 4 gives us that kind of a hint. In Revelation 4, when John is taken up into the throne room, he sees the throne with God on it, and there's a rainbow around the throne. And around the throne also are 24 thrones on which sit 24 elders. Now, some suggest the 24 elders could be what? Any ideas? 12 plus 12. 12 tribes plus 12 apostles equal the sum of all God's people over human history. Now, if, go back to chapter 21, and you got this wall, and as the wall of this cube is clear, it's jasper, clear as crystal, and you have God the light, because there's no sun needed, it says. He's super bright. And when light shines through a clear, clearest crystal, jasper, glass, what do you get coming out the other side? A rainbow. It's a prism. Could this in chapter 4 be this hint that already this 24 elders, a 12 plus 12, seated around the throne, God's light shining out through the rainbow, that we are this new Jerusalem already? And that has a lot of implications, which we won't unpack now. But um, we see this hinted at also in John 14, where Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. It doesn't necessarily only have to refer to heaven. The Father's house really refers to the temple. And heaven is described as a temple in many different ways. But it could also refer to just us. In the church are many dwelling places. And they go to prepare a place for you. That's really what he did at the crucifixion and resurrection. He prepared a place for us in the body of Christ. So at one level, there is that reality already hinted at. And we see that in Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2, which I won't get into. But all of that to say that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, opens up a host of opportunities for further theological and biblical reflection, and most importantly, as President Mark highlighted, application. Don't leave it in your head. At Taylor, we're highly invested in a holistic journey of discipleship. Mind, body, soul, and spirit. What you know needs to integrate with who you are, your character, that needs to inform your craft, your skills, in terms of how you live out as a minister of, of the grace of Jesus Christ. And if you're interested in following up on some of this, this is a shameless promotion, I apologize, but I mentioned I'm going to be speaking at the Wall Lectures January 15th. Um, 
It's 10.30 to 4.30, and we're offering it free to anybody here at Prairie. Uh, if you want to go online, we'll have it streamed live online. Uh, it's usually 25 bucks, but uh, we're going to offer it free to anybody here. If you want to, um, there, go online, you'll see the times for the various sessions or three one-hour sessions. But here are the sessions. Uh, imminence is the first session. I'll talk about what we started talking about here. Is the church already the New Jerusalem? And what does that mean, practically? Uh, imminence is eternity now. We're going to play with textual Lego blocks. What? Anybody like playing with Lego blocks? I did when I was a kid. <laughs> I'm going to show you something on how Revelation would be structured to maintain the sense of imminence. Jesus is coming very, very soon for the first century people. And presence, becoming the new Jerusalem in our communities. And we're going to have Howard Lawrence and then Karen Wilkes from Forge Canada talk about how they're bringing what it means to be uh, Christ into their communities. So here is the little teaser. Okay, everybody's got their chart for Revelation, right? Here's what I'll talk about, textual Lego blocking. And just to nail it down to one thing, I'm going to suggest that Revelation is repeating the events of the sixth seal from many different angles for the rest of the book. That's it. The sixth seal is the eschaton. Everybody in the first century could have seen themselves being on the cusp of Christ coming back. And the rest of Revelation is just repeating the short Reader's Digest version of the sixth seal from many different perspectives. And I'll show you why I get to that structure through some Jewish and Hebrew literary devices that are used regularly in vision uh, casting. So that'll be one of our sessions, if that twigs any of your interest. But to finish, I'm going to ask you the question. How will you incarnate Jesus into your world this Christmas season? How will you do that? Don't make it up. Don't figure it out. Just come and say to your Holy Spirit, place a name on my heart. Place an action. Place a commitment. What does that mean to incarnate you, Lord Jesus, into my world? Let's take a moment of silence to ask the Holy Spirit to speak, and then I'll pray to conclude. Dear Spirit, speak to us now, I pray. Dear Holy Spirit, to whatever, whatever you have spoken, we say amen. Let it be so. Amen.